Church, if you could please open up to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. While you're turning there, I am a fan of movies. I'm a fan of stories. Um, I used to not love to read. When I was in school, I had to read many books that uh, were just, if I'm being honest, boring to me. I didn't understand why I had to read these. I understand they're classics. I think this is boring. I don't want to read it. And so I would read two or three pages and fall asleep. I mean, being wide awake. I could stay awake from anything else. You give me a book in my hand, I'd fall asleep. Well, I learned eventually that it wasn't so much that I didn't like reading. I just don't like reading what is not fun to read. I don't like reading what I don't like to read, if that makes any sense. And I came across some books that suddenly I love to read. The first introduction to that was the Harry Potter series when I was in middle school, maybe, I think, when it came out. Suddenly I found, wait a minute, I can read a whole book in three days. And so I picked up every book in the series, I read them, and then I learned a little bit later that it's not just fiction that I can learn to love to read. I can learn to love to read nonfiction. I became and am still becoming more and more of a reader. But I love movies still. I love seeing stories unfold. I especially love suspense movies. I like movies that have me on the edge of my seat or movies that have some kind of a plot where parts and elements are revealed and then parts are hidden and you're waiting to see how everything's going to unfold. Sometimes they will do this with different bank heists or prison breaks or even just defeating a bad guy. There will be a plan and this plan begins to be executed but then something goes wrong suddenly. They have this plan, you saw it, it's going and then something happens and you think, oh well what's going to happen now? And just when you think everything is over, Suddenly, some secret element of the plan that was there the whole time, you didn't see it in the beginning, but it was there. It was hidden from your sight. Well, now, later in the movie, it comes to light, and everything the whole time was all according to plan anyway, and you just didn't know it. And you had this moment of like, oh, that was brilliant. I, I did not see that coming. I, I, didn't, I had no idea that that was going to happen. I love these types of stories and movies. This morning, we're going to see that this isn't just true for movies. Here's our main idea. Everything, even the unpredictable moments of our lives, everything happens according to God's plan and God's purposes. To give you some context this morning, we are finishing up the book of Genesis. We've looked at creation. Everything was created by God for His glory, for our good. We picked back up after 1 Corinthians in the second half of the book, though it's more than half word-wise. That's Genesis 12 through 50. And the theme here is separated by God for his glory and for our good. And we see God separating a people of God out for a purpose. That's the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're following God's promise from Genesis 3.15 through this family and now as we come to chapter 37, we get to the end of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Well, now we're starting a new chapter, Joseph. But it's not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So then what is Joseph's purpose here? Why is there such a significant part of Genesis dedicated to Joseph? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Hopefully you're at Genesis 37. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word. I will read Genesis chapter 37. I'll start in verse 2, 
and I will go down through verse 11. Hear the word of God this morning. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to them, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired all of your holy word, would you now please speak to us, your people? Use the truth of your word to change us into the image of God, separating us from what we used to be, so that we can become what you desire for us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. As we finish up the book of Genesis this morning, the story centers around one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. Joseph dreams that his family will one day bow down to him. Well, his brothers don't like that. So what do they do? Well, they devise a plan to kill him. But one of the brothers, Reuben, convinces them not to kill Joseph. They throw him in a pit, and Reuben is going to come back and save him. But while Reuben is not looking, something we don't really know the details there, but he's not aware of what's happening, some slave traders come by, and the brothers say, we have an idea. Let's just sell him to these slave traders. Done. So they do. They sell Joseph to these slave traders. Reuben comes back, and he is devastated. And so all the brothers go back and tell Jacob who's now named Israel, that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Meanwhile, Joseph is being sold to Potiphar in Egypt. Now, Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh, and God blesses everything that Joseph does for Potiphar. So Potiphar puts him in charge of his whole household. You manage everything. Everything you touch turns to gold. Do it. Manage my whole household. So he does. But Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. And when he refuses... She falsely claims that he tried to seduce her, and Joseph is now sent to prison. While in prison, yet again, the Lord blesses everything Joseph does. So the prison guard, the keeper of the prison, puts Joseph in charge of everything under his command. He says, you manage the prison, and he does. 
And while he's there, Joseph meets two prisoners, the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the Pharaoh's baker. We don't know why they're there, but something has happened, and they each have these weird dreams. And Joseph says, well, these belong to God. I can tell you what they mean. And he tells one that he will be released and live, and he tells the other that he will die, and these things come to pass. Well, two years go by, and now Pharaoh has some weird dreams that no one can interpret. The cupbearer remembers Joseph. He says, Pharaoh, I know a man. He told me all these things would happen two years ago, and it happened. So Pharaoh goes and gets Joseph. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, and he warns them, there are seven years of plenty that are coming, and after that, there will be seven years of extreme famine, no food in all the land. So Joseph advises Pharaoh to store up food for seven years so that they can survive this famine. And Pharaoh recognizes God's hand on Joseph. So he says, Joseph, you will be in charge of everything in Egypt, second only to me. Anything that anybody does will be at your command. So Joseph now has gone from this pitiable state to second in command in all of Egypt. Well, the famine hits, and Joseph's family in Canaan, they hear that there is food in Egypt. So Jacob, now Israel, sends his sons all except Benjamin, the youngest, to go and get food from Egypt. Well, when they get there, Joseph recognizes the brothers. They do not recognize Joseph anymore. And so Joseph begins to torment them. He accuses them of being spies. He demands that they bring their youngest brother to prove they're not liars. He imprisons Simeon as leverage. He frames them all for theft And then when they do bring Benjamin, he frames Benjamin for theft. But finally, after all of this ordeal, Joseph breaks down. And he tells his brothers who he really is. He says, I am Joseph. It is me, your brother. Pharaoh and the family helps to move Joseph's whole family to Egypt. And they live in the land of Goshen so that they might be taken care of. And this is where the story ends. When Jacob blesses his sons, establishing the 12 tribes of Israel that we will read about from this point forward in Scripture. Joseph realizes what has happened. His father passes away, carries him to the land of Canaan. And Joseph realizes that everything that happened here, all of it, was planned by God to preserve their family. So that one day they might go back and take possession of the promised land just as God had promised. So that is our passage this morning, Genesis 37 through Genesis 50 in a nutshell. The final leg of this journey in Genesis is a grand story of God's plans and his purposes. A purpose is like a goal. It's a desired end. It is something that we are trying to accomplish. The plan is simply a means of accomplishing a purpose. So typically you start with a purpose and then you construct a plan that will accomplish that purpose. Well, with plan and purpose, there is one string that kind of ties these together, and that's called intention. You devise a plan that you intend to accomplish a purpose. And this morning, our passage is a grand weaving together of many different plans and purposes into one 
grand plan and purpose of God. Here's what we're going to see this morning. Number one, we're going to see hidden intentions. Number two, we're going to see intentions revealed. And number three, we're going to see revealed purposes. So number one, hidden intentions. We see two major hidden intentions in Genesis 37 through 39. The first we've read already. God reveals a small part of his plan to Joseph. And he does so in two different but related dreams. Knowing everything that's going to unfold, we can see that this revelation is only a glimpse. God doesn't reveal his whole plan to Joseph and the family. He only reveals a small portion of it. Most of it is still hidden. We also don't get to see exactly what God's intentions are yet. We only see part of the plan. We don't know why is this going to happen? Why is it significant? What does it matter? We don't get any of those answered. The question that we still have after seeing these dreams is, God, what's your will here? Now, the Bible speaks of God's will in a number of ways, different but complementary ways. One of the ways that the Bible does this is by distinguishing between God's revealed will and his hidden will. There are some things that God has revealed to us. There are some things that God has not revealed to us. These are also sometimes called God's will of command, what he's revealed, and then God's will of decree, what he has not revealed. He's decreed that it will happen. We just don't see that decree. Deuteronomy 29.29 is a great text for this. Here's what it says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are secret things, the hidden, the hidden will of God, the will of decree, and then there are these revealed things, the revealed will of God, the will of command. And this revealed will of God is given that we may do all the words of this law. So the revealed will of God is right here. This is what God has revealed to us that we may do all the words of it. God reveals his will that we might pursue it. The hidden will of God is for him alone to know. He's already decreed what will happen, but he does not reveal all of that to us. We often struggle with this. Who am I supposed to marry, God? What job am I supposed to take? Where am I supposed to move? We don't have all of these answers because God does not want us to pursue his will in that way. He wants us to take his revealed will and to pursue that. Our response is to trust God's hidden will and to obey his revealed will. We trust what he has hidden from us. We don't know what it is, but we trust. And then we obey what he reveals. Because part of God's will is hidden, we will not always understand the part that's revealed. Joseph and his family don't understand what's happening here in the beginning of chapter 37. But Jacob understands there's something going on, and he takes it to heart. 
when we don't understand God's purposes behind what he reveals in the Bible, we must remember that God does not reveal everything to us. He doesn't just want us to obey, and he doesn't just want us to obey what we understand. He wants us to trust him and obey even when we don't understand. And the only way that he can do that is by withholding something from us. Now, in contrast to God's hidden intentions, we have Genesis 38 and 39, and these accounts of Judah and Tamar, and of Potiphar's wife and Joseph. So Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, had three sons, and he found a wife for one of them named Tamar. Well, the son was wicked and died, and so Judah gives the second son to Tamar to carry on the family line. Well, this son is also wicked and dies. So now Judah's got his third son, who's too young to marry, and he says, when my third son gets old enough, Tamar, I will give him to you to carry on the family line. Well, when the third son gets old enough, Judah doesn't do it. He's probably seen what happened to his first two sons and says, uh, I, don't, I don't think I want this to happen. Regardless of why he does it, the time comes, he doesn't give him to Tamar, so Tamar dresses up as a prostitute in order to sleep with Judah, and she becomes pregnant. And they strike up a deal. I'm going to give you this flock. And she says, well, I need something to make sure that I get paid. And so she takes his personal belongings. It says specifically that she gets a signet, a cord, and his staff as a pledge. And then she disappears. And they return to pay her, but she's gone. He says, well, just let her keep it. This is embarrassing enough as it is. Let's be done with it. Well, news comes around that Tamar is pregnant. And Judah is going to have her killed, specifically burned. So she revealed his belongings and said, this is the man who did this to me. Uh-oh. So now Judah says, okay, she's a better person than I am. She doesn't die. She gives birth. And she has two sons, we'll look at here in just a moment. But Tamar is kept alive. Here we see man's hidden intentions. Judah revealed that he would give his youngest son to Tamar, but his hidden will, his true intention that no one could see, was the opposite. This is unlike God's hidden intentions. This is for his own good. And likewise, Tamar received this pledge from Judah with these hidden intentions. She would use them to justify her sin and to condemn Judah and live. Well, we see the same thing here in Genesis chapter 39 with Potiphar and his wife. Specifically, Potiphar's wife, as she is continually enticing Joseph to sleep with her. Finally, she reaches a point where she goes in, in uh, chapter 39, verse 12, she goes in and catches him by his garment this time, saying, lie with me. Well, he tries to get away, and in the process of doing so, leaves his garment in her hand. He gets out of the house. She has the garment, so she goes to the guards and says, look what this man tried to do to me. She has these hidden intentions. Do you see how sin warps our intentions and our purposes? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
We see in movies all the time this advice from the world, just trust your heart. The world does not understand that the heart is deceitfully wicked. And the heart needs a better guide. It needs God's word. Our intentions should always be God's own glory. But sin warps our hearts so that what we really want is our own good at God's expense. It doesn't matter what this says. This is what feels right. It doesn't matter what this says. This is what I like. It doesn't matter what this says. I think this is going to be better, more effective, more efficient. And what we don't realize is that God's glory is really actually for our own ultimate good. If we would live in line with God's glory, we would find out at the end of the day, this is actually a better good for me, as Joseph would find out later. As warped as our own hidden intentions are, I want you to notice here an important pattern that we're going to see this morning. This account of Judah and Tamar seems like a random insert, but it's not. The names Tamar and Perez, one of her two sons, pop up elsewhere in the Bible. Do you know where? It's in Matthew chapter 1. Why do Tamar and Perez show up in Matthew chapter 1? It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We see these warped, hidden intentions by man, and what man means for evil, God means for good. What man means for evil, God means for good. That is hidden intentions. As we get to Genesis 40 through 44, we see our second point this morning, intentions revealed. Intentions revealed. At this point in the story, God's hidden intentions begin to be revealed. Joseph is in prison for a reason, and it's not just Potiphar's wife. Yeah, that's why he's there, but there's a grand reason behind why he's really in prison. He's in prison so that he can interpret Pharaoh's dream. That's where God is taking Joseph. The way to get there is prison. So Joseph goes to prison. And while he's in prison, he sees these two individuals, he interprets their dreams, and that's the way to get to Pharaoh. Look at Genesis chapter 41. Joseph has interpreted these two dreams. The cupbearer is released, and Joseph asks him, remember me. But in the very last verse of chapter 40, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. 
Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are. 
You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Multiple times here, Joseph credits the dreams and their interpretations to God. Verse 16, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So we see God's intentions revealed here in more than one way. Number one, we see God's intentions revealed behind the dreams. God intends to send a famine, and he is revealing that. It is becoming known what his plans are. God intends for Egypt to be prepared for it. That's why he revealed it, so that it would be pursued. God intends for Joseph to take command in Egypt. The second intention that we see revealed, we see God's intentions revealed for why Joseph had to suffer. Have you noticed so far in this account, we haven't really read anything about Joseph that would cause us to dislike him. We haven't read anything about Joseph that seems to be blameworthy. We know that it's there because he's sinful just like everyone else. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their lives were obviously imperfect. Joseph's life doesn't seem to be, though we know it is imperfect, it doesn't seem to be. Isn't that odd? Joseph doesn't appear to have done much wrong, yet he has fallen just as hard as any other man. Anyone who doesn't believe in God might wrongly conclude that, man, this guy is just really unlucky. He hadn't done anything wrong to anybody. He just keeps getting the wrong end of the deal. This isn't fair. He's been betrayed by his brothers, destined to a life of slavery, in prison, left in prison even after helping the cupbearer out. Suffering is not always the result of poor decisions or sinful actions. Suffering, believe it or not, is planned by God for our good. Suffering is not always because you did something wrong. Sometimes it's because God is working something in your life that can only come about through what you are going through. Now, in our suffering, we never think about this. Hardly ever. I don't. When I'm suffering, the last thing I'm thinking is, oh God, praise be to you because this is for your glory and my good. I'm thinking, this is miserable. Why did it have to happen this way, God? I can think of five other ways this could have happened that would be a lot easier than what I'm going through right now. But suffering is planned by God for our good. The scriptures teach us that suffering refines our faith in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Scripture teaches us that suffering produces character and hope in us in Romans 5, 3-4. Scripture teaches us that suffering builds our trust in God in 1 Peter 4, verse 19. And here we see that it is planned so that Joseph might be exalted to second in command in all of Egypt. 
we cannot always see the end goal of our suffering in the midst of it. We're going to suffer and we won't understand why. And sometimes it will be a very intense suffering. It will be a hard, devastating suffering. Many times we have to go through it before we see God's intentions revealed. And this is what happens to Joseph. Look at Genesis 42, starting in verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Can you imagine the moment here? Joseph has this dream. I, I had this weird dream. You're going to bow to me one day. Isn't that strange? And his brothers hate him for it. And you can imagine all the years that Joseph thought, if only I hadn't blank. If only I hadn't told them the dream. If only I hadn't told on my brothers. If only I hadn't caused them to hate me. If only, if only, if only, if only. That does no good. But then we have this moment here where now the tables have turned. And he sees them come in and bow, and they're fulfilling the dream, and they don't even know it. But Joseph knows it. What a sweet moment. They bow down, and Joseph remembers, this is the dream. Now look at what Joseph does in light of God's marvelous providence here. I'm going to pick back up in verse 9. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Go down to verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Imagine the scene here. This man, second in command of all of Egypt, says, You're spies. I know you are. No, we're honest men. Honestly, this is the situation. He gives them feed and they go. And then they find the money in their sack. Well, now what's this guy in Egypt going to think when he thinks that we've stolen our money and we haven't actually stolen it, but it's here. What is he going to think of us? What's going to happen? And they rightly conclude, what is this that God has done to us? 
So in stark contrast with God's revealed intentions that are revealing good, Joseph's revealed intentions here seem to be revealing the opposite. It's very obvious to everyone, except for Jacob's family, the brothers, it's very obvious to everyone what Joseph is intending here. He commands his servants, hey, go put the money back in their sacks. So the servants know what's going on. Everybody knows what's going on except for the brothers. And then later when they return, Joseph doesn't hold them accountable. He says, ah, it's okay. Here, come and eat. They bring Benjamin with them. Come and eat. And then he takes the silver cup and he does the exact same thing. Puts everything back in their sacks. Hey, put the silver cup in that man's sack. And then let them leave. And then after they get away a little bit, pursue them and say, is this how you repay the kindness we have shown? You've stolen the cup, the silver cup of divination. Everyone can see right through Joseph's intentions here. Now, we don't get to see all of his intentions. Does he want to keep Benjamin and send the rest home? Like, is that what his purpose is? Is it all some kind of warped test to see if they've really changed? We really don't know. We can speculate. We really don't know. It's not given to us. But let me suggest to you this morning that what we can know here is that our actions often reveal our intentions. The actions of others often reveal their intentions. We or others might say one thing, but what we do really reveals something else entirely. Let me tell you right now, we are not the best judges of intention. You know why? Because intention sits in the seat of the heart, and we can't see that. Now, we can guess. I can guess what someone's intention is. I can make an educated guess and probably get pretty close. Sometimes I'll think I'm close and I'm far off. Sometimes I actually guess correctly. But at the end of the day, it is still a guess. Only God who sees the heart can judge our intentions. And do you know one of the ways he does so? It is through his written word. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 13 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We will not give account to one another one day. You will not give account to the person sitting next to you. You will not give account to the person sitting in front of you or behind you. It doesn't matter what you convince everyone else of. It doesn't matter how well you can manipulate your actions to disguise your intentions or your motives. All are exposed before God. He sees the heart. He knows who we really are, even those parts of us that we don't reveal to others and we try to hide, they will not remain hidden before him and we will give account. God's word is enough to condemn us justly and it does for it reveals to us who we really are. We are rebels against this. We are rebels 
against God in need of mercy and forgiveness. This is why Jesus suffered. God's intentions weren't clear to many during Jesus' suffering, but after Jesus' suffering, his intentions were revealed. Just like Joseph suffered for the good of his family, Jesus has suffered for the good of the world. His intentions, God's intentions have been revealed. That any and all who turn to Jesus from their sin and they trust Jesus in faith, they might be forgiven and saved. You, however bad your intentions have always been, can be saved right now through faith in Christ. Wiped clean, your slate will be. Completely forgiven. Freed from your bondage to sin. And it simply takes a moment to declare, you are my God and King. I trust you and I turn to you from my sin to follow you. And in that moment, the scripture promises you will be saved. You will be dwelled by God. He lives within you, changing your desires. Causing you now to walk in his ways. Affirming to you that you belong to him. But please do not make this mistake of thinking, yeah, I've done that. I know my heart, you don't. And then walking out of here and your life being in complete contradiction to this book. Your actions will reveal your intentions. Do not be deceived by your heart. It is deceitful and sick. Who can understand it? The cross of Jesus Christ is the perfect picture of our bad intentions and God's good intentions being revealed. What we meant for evil, God meant for good. What Joseph meant for evil, God meant for good. Here's our third point this morning. Revealed purposes. Revealed purposes. In Genesis 45 through 50, finally, Joseph breaks down. He reveals to his brothers who he really is. They reveal to their father that Joseph is alive. And Joseph's whole family moves to Egypt and is preserved. But that's not all. Look at Genesis 47, verse 27. Genesis 47, verse 27. It says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So even now, at the very end of the book, God's purposes are still being accomplished. The original purpose of God, and we've seen this all throughout Genesis, maybe you haven't noticed this phrase, be fruitful and multiply, it is still being fulfilled, as is God's purpose to make Abraham into a great nation. We are now seeing God's purposes coming out and coming to light. The Israelites are multiplying in Egypt. And in Genesis 48 through 49, the 12 tribes of Israel, the future nation of Israel, are established. At the very end, in Genesis chapter 50, 
we have the key to understanding our entire text this morning, and I would argue the entire book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant for evil. God meant for good. This is one of the most profound verses in the entire Bible. And many people misunderstand it today because they fail to pay attention to the exact words here. You meant, God meant. Other translations might say, you planned, God planned. Whatever word your translation uses, the word is the same in both instances. It's the exact same words used to describe what man did and then what God did in that one decisive moment. God does not just use our own evil for our good. It doesn't say what you meant for evil, God took that and then just used it for good. God doesn't just turn our evil for our good. It doesn't say what you meant for evil, God took it and turned it around for your good. This kind of implies that God has plan B in response to us, our plans, plan A. But God does not do that. What we planned, God planned. And what God plans, we plan. God didn't have to adjust course in reaction to their evil plans and purposes. It's all part of a grand plan and purpose. Now that does not mean that God is responsible for evil. Because in the same way that God plans everything for good, we still plan for evil. We still plan for evil. We cannot say, I only did this God because you planned it. He's going to say, actually, you planned it. You did that. I didn't force you to do that. You chose to do it. But it's your plan, God, but you chose. You did it. And you wanted to do it. We cannot blame God for evil. We plan. We make choices. God's role in planning doesn't eliminate our role in planning, and our role in planning doesn't eliminate God's role in planning. And here's the good news in all of this. God's purposes and God's plans for good 
always trump our purposes and our plans for evil. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that what they meant for evil, God's plans will always trump it for good? There is never going to be an evil that's just for evil's sake that God looks at and says, hmm, actually can't make good out of that because he's already planned everything for good. So God's purposes and plans for good always trump our purposes and plans for evil. At the end of Genesis, whose plan wins out? God's plan. His people are saved. Think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Whose plan is it that wins out? God's plan wins out. Though men meant his death for evil, God planned that exact event for good. And he won. He wins every single time. If God can plan and bring about the greatest good for man from the greatest of man's evil plans, do you really think that your trials and suffering will be any different? Do you really think your trials and suffering are too big for God? Hear this wonderful news this morning. He planned that. And there's a purpose, and it's good. You don't have to see that good purpose to trust it. But we often don't trust it. And we struggle, and we, we stress, and we're filled with anxiety. God's purposes for good always win out. Even the events of Joseph's life, from his moments of integrity to his moments of suffering, it was all planned by God for God's own glory and for Joseph's own good. And so it is with us. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If you know Christ, Every single thing in your life is planned to work together for your good. Forgiveness and freedom from sin and eternal fellowship with God. If you do not know Christ, every single thing in your life is not planned to work together for your good because you will not be forgiven and you will not be freed from sin. You will not have eternal fellowship with God. You will have eternal punishment in hell. Here's the good news. If that's you, you can plan right now. You can decide right now. I want to follow Jesus. I want to call on Jesus and be saved. I want to have faith in Jesus. And every person who does that, the Bible promises, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no one in here right now who can think, I really want to follow God, but it's not a part of his plan for me to do so. That soul does not exist in this room. If God is stirring you right now and you're realizing, I want this, it's available. No one will walk out of here and be able to say, I don't want to follow God, and it's God's fault and I'm free from guilt here. You've made your decision. I'm giving you a chance now. 
Just because God plans does not mean that we don't plan. So what are the intentions of your heart? As God is exposing your own intentions this morning, what is he speaking to you? You can be numbered among those who are called according to his purpose so that all things work together for your good. Will you turn to Jesus today? For the rest of us, church, may we not ignore the hidden intentions of our own hearts. May we expose them so that when they are revealed, we might turn from our own evil intentions and embrace God's revealed will. And when God doesn't reveal his whole will to us, but keeps some of that hidden, may we trust his revealed purposes and obey him anyway. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, as you revealed through your prophet Isaiah, your thoughts are not our thoughts, and your ways are not our ways. They are far too high for us to comprehend. Lord, I even struggle in comprehending how we can mean for evil and you can mean for good at the exact same time. I struggle in understanding how that works. And you have not revealed it fully to us, Lord, but I trust it. And I will obey it. And I will plan and we will plan our lives according to your revealed will, which you have given us to pursue. Lord, would you reveal to us the intentions of our heart that we bury deep down so that other people don't see. Those ugly things about us that we will never be rid of until we expose them. Lord, would you use us in one another's lives as our intentions are revealed and exposed to bring grace and mercy and transformation to one another, that we might be mutually conformed into the image of Jesus Christ together. And Lord, for that soul in this room today, that you are revealing the true intentions of this individual's heart. This facade that masks itself as love and devotion, but is neither. It is actually just disobedience. Lord, to that soul, will you remind them of your intention to save, that they might humbly lay down their sin at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, that they might decide today, Lord, even if they can't understand all of your holy will, to trust and obey you in faith and repentance. Thank you for being such a merciful God to us. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.